Morning. If you got your Bibles, open up with me to the book of Malachi. We have, if you're our guest, we're actually working through the Gospel of John. And uh, we're about chapter 7, and so we've hit the pause on that uh, for multiple reasons. We, as your pastors and your leaders, want to pause in the midst of a time that has been very difficult in the life of our country, in the world, and in your life individually, and seek to restore the heart of worship in our own lives, in our own church, and even, Lord willing, in our own country. And so we've went to a book that deals with worship, and that is Malachi. And so we're going to pick up today and begin where we should begin, where the book begins, where the Lord begins, before He corrects His people, before He loves them through correction, He reminds them of how much He loves them. And so would you stand to me, with me to, with your feet, on your feet as we look at Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord. Beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word to your people, both then and now. And yet, Lord, there are some distinctions that we want to make. But, oh God, it is our prayer today that at the heart of this life, has robbed any person in here of the joy of their salvation in you. Lord, we are asking you, through the power of your Spirit, that you would restore that joy today through the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our corporate prayer. And we are one in this prayer, God. Answer it today. Answer it for those who are watching online, God. May we be forever changed through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So when you think of love, what comes to mind? If you had to describe love with one word, what would it be? Anybody want to answer that out loud? This is the, this is the verbal part of the sermon. What's the first thing that pops in your head? Amen. There's the right answer. If you went to work tomorrow and you asked that question, what would they say? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it could be anywhere from stuff to answers that are true. It's how I feel about this person or that person. 
It's usually connected to our emotions and our feelings. That brings at least a particular level of emotion, some actions that are usually attached to that. Sometimes you will get the actions. But what the Lord wants us to do is not define our love by what the world says love is, whether it is partially true or not. We get our understanding of love by understanding what covenant love is. This is the context of the Bible. If you do not understand covenant, you will have a hard time ever putting the pieces of the Bible together and seeing it as one story. And truly, if you do not understand covenant love, you will make yourself the hero of the Bible instead of making Jesus Christ the hero of the Bible. You see, Malachi's depending on this, that we understand this truth statement. If we were going to use the grammatical, we would say, the indicatives come before the imperatives. These statements of truth. In other words, there are things that the Lord says that this is just the way it is. And He reminds us of that today by helping us understand covenant love. He declares it and then He demonstrates it. The declaration here is simple, isn't it? The true statement, I love you. Past, present, future. I am loving you. I will love you. I am not going to stop loving you. The command. What does the Lord expect? Us to respond faithfully. So the true statement always is followed by a command. And he's going to make some in the next few weeks. But we must start here today. Starts with the true statement of the Lord of hosts. The one who... who who governs and who rules both armies, foreign and domestic. Heaven and earth is all under His authority. Here were the people's question. There's three questions really I want us to look at today. The first one is, what is covenant love? The second one is the reality of the question. The question that was in the people's heart. The question, does God really love us? Now, why would they ask that question, even if it wasn't verbalized? You see, how can I really know that God loves me when He has not met my expectations? How can I know God loves me when my reality is far worse than I expected? It's not changing, God. Here's what they're saying. Why didn't God do something? My parents died in exile. In Babylon. Why didn't he do something? Why did he leave us there so long? Was he unable or just unwilling? You know what this has led to? In their life. A spirit of indifference. This veiled with a form of religion. They didn't stop going to church. They just stopped loving Christ. They just stopped loving Yahweh. But they kept going through the motions. You see, this is the question for us today. Our third question. Will we embrace the love of Christ or the religion of man? You see, every good religion, every good worldview has a faith basis and actions that come based off what you believe. And atheism and naturalism is no different. It is a faith-based system that, that lives. you live in response to what you believe. How are we going to live? The heart of worship, brothers and sisters, is restored as we embrace the covenant love of Jesus Christ and reject 
dead religiosity. Embracing is worshiping. It not only leads to worship, it is worship. So today we want to see our main idea is simple. It's in your notes. The Lord of hosts declares and demonstrates his covenant love. And as a response, he is worthy of our worship. First, he declares it. Look in verse 1. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's, that's clear enough, isn't it? I have loved you, says the Lord. Love in this context, used this way, is used 32 times in the Old Testament. And it refers to a covenant love. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7. Let's begin to look at the nature of this love. Deuteronomy Chapter 7, look at verse 7. Here's the question. Why does God love them? Particularly Israel. Why did God love them? Here's, sometimes it's good to know why he, didn't, why he doesn't love them, why He didn't choose them. Here's what He says. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, listen to this language, Set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. He did not choose you because there was a lot of you, because you were impressive. We get two words here that are really important. He set, he set his love on you and he chose you. You know what the word set means? It means to bind, it means to join, and even to desire. The word chose means to select. It means to prefer one thing over something else. I love you means I have set my love on you. I have bound myself to you. I have chose you particularly. Four realities I want us to see this morning. Covenant love is an ongoing choice. Covenant love is an ongoing choice. It is this, as Deuteronomy says, a setting of your all of you. It is God setting all of Himself, all that He has on you. This is their reminder. You see, love here is referring to a state of being. It's just the way it is. It's, it's their reality. And if you're in Christ, it is yours. It is their declared reality right now. If you're in Christ right now, that's yours. It's settled. It's not up for debate. We're not going to vote on it. It's true. Yahweh's stating something here. His continuing commitment to His covenant relationship with a particular people. Covenant love is an ongoing choice. And we see here, when we begin to talk about the word faithfulness, and the word commitment, and the word devotion, and as we go on, the word honor, and the word fear, and these things he's going to bring up over the next few weeks. Covenant love, secondly, is more than affection. We could say this this way. It's more than emotion. But listen, if you're taking notes, write this to the side. It is never less than that. It's, to say something is more than that is not to say it is less than that. It is more than affection, but it is not less than affection. It is more than emotion, but it's not less than that. When we say God is emotional, we are not saying He doesn't 
get happy or get angry where you're saying that you don't have to worry about God having a bad day and destroying you like a bug because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Praise the Lord, right? God is not moved by his emotions. Covenant love is more than that. This love and hate that you see not only here but in other places is a technical term. It is, in the context is covenant. It has to do with these two parties that enter into covenant relationship with each other. And it has to do with the expectation of these, this relationship. There are stipulations to covenants. We've spoken about that before. Here in Malachi, it refers to the Lord's election of Israel for an exclusive and a special relationship with them. He redeemed them out of bondage. He not only sent them into exile, He delivered them from exile. And here's what He's saying. I love you, which means I am going to continue to be faithful to you despite that you are unfaithful to me. God doesn't give up on His people. Isn't that good news this morning? He doesn't. How many times have we given up on Him? This is the message for us this morning. God, covenant love is an ongoing choice. It is more than affection. It is a commitment to be faithful to His people. And this is inseparably connected with the third truth. Covenant love is based on the strength and the character of the covenant maker. You see, in a covenant, there, is, there was the king that was all-powerful, and there was what we call a vassal king. He was a lesser king. They entered into covenant relationship. The first thing that covenant do, does is tell you who the, who the king is and what he's done. He's the king. The covenant is based on that. It's based on his sovereignty. It's based on his power. It's based on his strength. It's based on his character. Covenant love is based on the covenant maker. We could say it this way. Covenant love is based on the covenant lover. He is a covenant lover. Yes. Yes, that's the way we should think about God in holiness and purity. He loves us. He is the lover. He is the one that initiated the covenant with His people. And He will never waver in His commitment. Does that not change the way we should see marriage? For it is a covenant that points to the gospel. You see, this covenant love is a settled attitude for His people. A settled attitude. When, that's what we mean when, we, when I say, Rick, Jesus is for you. What am I saying? I'm saying, he's, he's not wondering about Rick this morning. He's settled in it. He's for his people. He's not changing his mind. Whether he, whether he pats us on the back and encourages us like he's doing this morning, or whether he puts his finger in our face and says, this is what's going to happen if you keep doing that. Don't we do both in the lives of our children? And it's not both love. That's where it comes from, you see. And so why can I ask you a question? We all know the answer to this. What is the test of any relationship? In the life of the church, you join a church, I can tell you what's going to happen once the honeymoon wears off. Something's going to happen, you're not going to like it. Usually it's how we do something. Not like the way... You know, no pews in here, right? Yeah, we got 
pallets on the walls, right? It's not like it was. What's the test of any relationship conflict? That's when it comes up, that's the test. Isn't this good news this morning? This is our immovable sinner. The Lord is for His people because He has chose His people and He ain't changing His mind. It's good news this morning. You see, gospel love is covenant love. Gospel love is covenant love. Turn with me to Ephesians. We've already been reading there this morning. Mike, I didn't know you were going to read that. about did a holy dance when you started reading it. Almost. Baptists can't get off their toes. You ever see me? I'm up here. I get about to the top of the toes, but I hadn't, I hadn't got off the ground yet. But, you know, maybe it's coming. Ephesians. This should make us jump, brothers and sisters. This is, remember what we're saying, truth before command. Here's the truth this morning. Look at Ephesians 1. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Christ. Brothers and sisters, a gospel love is covenant love. It was a choice made before the foundation of the world, whereby He set His love on you. That is overwhelming. Before the Lord of hosts demands our worship. And listen, He does. He declares His love. It's the question. The question that comes out of the people from this. Just imagine this. Here's the question that comes. After that. After that. How have you loved us? You see it? I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? In other words, this is not as much a verbalized question as it is the attitude of the heart of which God knows. He can not only see your heart, you can tell one's heart by their actions. Because our actions come from who we are. So he looks at it and says, you see, Though he has delivered them and provided for them. Talked about this last Wednesday in our, in our, in our equipping group. But he, they went across the Red Sea. They saw the, the bodies floating on the water. And then what happens? They get hungry. <laughs> they get thirsty. And next thing they know, they, they forgot that God parted the water. Then they would forget he brought water from the rock. They would forget that they'd be walking around and a quail would hit them in the back of the head so they have meat to eat. They would quickly forget. And so they had. Though they had been to exile to teach them to trust, they come back pretty much unchanged. You see, before we just say how ridiculous that is, we need to understand whether it's in Malachi's day or it's in our day, God does not always meet our expectations, does He? doesn't matter on which con- context you're in. 
sort of we talked about that last week, which side of the bank you're on, whether you're in a rebuilt Jerusalem or whether you're in King's Mountain, God does not always meet our expectations and he didn't with them. Their expectations, our expectations, are notoriously man-centered. Even our good ones. <laughs> and this is what they were saying, like we said before. Why didn't God do something? And what had happened? Instead of coming back from exile, grateful for God's deliverance, they had come back indifferent to their Lord. And so they're going back. The temple worship had been reinstituted and the walls had rebuilt. And they were like, just don't see it. I don't see his goodness. You know? He should have delivered us 50 years ago. I mean, goodness gracious, this temple's nothing like it was. Look at the seats. They're not near as comfortable as they were it was when we left. Remember how comfortable those seats were? Oh, cushion. Not that much different. When God does not meet our expectation, listen, this is the most important thing I'm going to say today, most likely. When God does not meet our expectation, we can easily fall into an outward form of religiosity that masks inward indifference. When God does not meet our expectation, we can and we will easily fall into an outward form of religiosity that masks an indifference. And so he calls it like he sees it. The question is not whether God loves you. The question is, do you understand? Do you really believe that in your heart? Is it, it's settled for God this morning, but listen, is it settled for you? The Lord of hosts not only declares it, Here's, what, here's the purpose of the next few verses. He demonstrates it. He has demonstrated it, and he will demonstrate it. Look again at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? This is the question that, that the Lord asked. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. So how is the Lord demonstrating his covenant love to his people? What he does is he simply reminds them, have you forgotten who Jacob's brother was? Have you forgotten who the oldest brother was? You see, I want us to see three realities here. This is important. You will stumble over every text like this in the Bible unless you, unless you grasp this this morning. God's love is undeserved. That's what he's teaching us this morning. That's what he was reminding them. Don't you remember? Don't you remember Esau? You see, they wouldn't have been taught that the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. They would have known that. By the way, the Amalekites were as well. She studied a little history. We know the story. The story is in Genesis 25. It's a very concise story about Jacob and Esau. You remember, Abraham had Isaac. 
Isaac had two sons. Esau was number one. He was the firstborn and all that the privilege that that would naturally, biologically afford. Jacob was the secondborn. Do you remember when, he, when they were in the womb of Rebekah? Who, by the way, couldn't have children and she prayed and God answered her prayer. Genesis chapter 25, verse 23 says this. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So before they were born, before they had, as Paul says, neither done right or wrong, made any decision, the Lord had decreed that the older shall serve the younger. And so in the fullness of time, they were born. Look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Look down to verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac, Isaac loved Esau, but he, and he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So don't miss that little tidbit of information. Your family is not the only dysfunctional family in the world. Amen. Every family's got dysfunction, and their family was no different. There was some favoring going on here. Don't have to be a rocket science to figure that out. Goes on to tell us in the next chapter, chapter 26 and verse 34. says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beera, the Hittite, to be his wife. And my goodness, base math, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Look at verse 35. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And listen. 1,500 years later, they're still doing it. They're still doing it. That's the history if you follow it. Continually making life bitter for the, the descendants of Jacob. Herod was an Edomite. Remember the story of Esther and Haman? Haman's descendants came from Edom. This was the, the story, and it was only a two. There were many of, of, of Edom, the Edomites, and how they partnered against and so he asked this question with all that history that they would have understood far more than I've explained. Here's the question. What child deserved God's love? Which child deserved it? Jacob or Esau? Which deserved to carry the, the seed? Jacob or Esau? Was, was Jacob a little bit more righteous, a little bit better? Did he make better choices? Than Esau? Was one less dysfunctional than the other? Did God look through the corridor of time and see Jacob was a little bit more functionally, biblically literate, so he chose him? No. The, the reality of this is neither one of them deserved it. God's love is undeserved. Romans chapter 9, Paul comes back to this. God's election, God's choice, God's covenant love is apart from any human merit. 
Look at verse 13 of Romans 9. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, listen to what he says. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Do you see the point? No one deserves the mercy of God. Here's, what, here's what, how Paul settled the argument. God told Moses, listen up big boy. I'm the Lord of hosts. And though no one deserves mercy, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will be compassionate and merciful to my people because they have been called by my name. This is good news for God's people. It's good news for you this morning. God's love is undeserved. And listen, God's love is sovereign. You look back at verse 2, there's a yet in there. That's sovereignty right there. These two were brothers. And listen, by the way, they were both stinkers, right? They were just different kind of stinkers, right? One was wild and crazy, and the other was just slick, deceptive. You ought to run from, you ought to be in politics, right? Yet, I have loved you as I've loved Jacob. I love you. I'm going to love you. Don't you remember Jacob and Esau? I love Jacob. Listen, fully, freely, according to my own purpose and for my own glory. You know what he said in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 about you and about me? Why did he save you when you didn't deserve to be saved? For the purpose of his grace, to magnify his glory and to maximize our joy. God's love is sovereign. It is undeserved. And listen... Here's his point, even his greater point here. It is unmistakable and it is absolutely essential. It is unmistakable and it is absolutely essential. So here's his point. You want proof that I love you? Look at Esau's descendants. Because I set my affections on you and I did not set them on him. And look what happened to them. And here's what he's saying. You had not seen anything yet. If you don't believe this, if you can't find Obadiah, I don't know when the last time we flipped to Obadiah. <laughs> Obadiah chapter 1, it's on the screen. Obadiah chapter 1, verse 1, and there's more in Obadiah, and I don't have time to read it. Just beginning to begin in chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent out among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Important verse, verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwellings, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there... I will bring you down, declares the Lord. This 
was what he had said against Esau's descendants. In contrast, it's not in your notes, I don't think. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. What did he say in contrast to Jacob's descendants? Ezekiel 36, find verse 33. This is how he's demonstrating it. This is just us reading the Bible. Through what he has promised was going to happen to Esau's descendants for their pride and their wickedness. Ezekiel 36 Verse 33, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I will cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and I will, and, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, in, instead of being desolate, that it was in the sight of all who passed by, they will say, this land was desolate, has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and the desolate and the ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. The nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. To increase their people like a flock. Like the flock of sacrifices. Like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is how he has demonstrated it. He has demonstrated it, brothers and sisters, in redemptive history. And he has demonstrated it in your life. You see... Edom wasn't just a descendant of people. If we had time, we could talk about all the character. What was in the heart of Esau was in the heart of the Edomites. We see in Obadiah that there was pride. You look at verse 4 in Malachi 1.4. Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins to I'm not trying to be political, brothers and sisters. I'm just trying to warn us. Here's, the, here's, the, here's the, the spirit of Edom. We can build it on our own. We can make Edom great again. We can do it. We don't need God bless America or anything else. We can do it ourselves. Just give us the ball, God. He scorned his birthright. Do you remember? God says, my seed's coming through Jacob. He hated it. Here's what they said. We don't need the blessings of God. We can do it on our own. What did the Lord of hosts say? Yes, you can. But I will knock it down. You see... Both when he blesses us to build it and then when he knocks it down is a demonstration of the love of God for his people. This was his argument. And oh, if we had time today, I would take you to Jonathan and David. 
I would take you to 1 Samuel chapter 20. When Jonathan realized that the Lord had spoken and he was done with his father and the seed would not come through his name. It would come through David's. And what did he do? And how did he respond? He got close to the covenant love. He did not despise it. So we see later in 2 Samuel 9 that Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, came to live and he became a part of David's family. There's a story there. You see, Judah had been devastated because of their idolatry. But the Lord of hosts had brought them back to their land. And here's what he's saying. I have not done that to Edom, and I'm not going to. But I have done that to you because I love you. You have been restored. You have been sustained because I love you. They deserve nothing. If God would have not chose them, they would have been destroyed along with Edom. And he would have been just. Brothers and sisters, how has God demonstrated his love to you? He's demonstrated it on the cross. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God shows his love for us. He's proven his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord of hosts declares and demonstrates His covenant love. And listen, so what today? The Lord of hosts is worthy of our worship. He is worthy. I told the praise team this morning, every Sunday morning, I get up and I plead with the Lord. I say, God, don't let me say something. I shouldn't say. This is dangerous here. It's dangerous for a man of God to open up the Bible. It's dangerous for someone to say, oh, just give me that, I can do that better. It's dangerous. This is dangerous. I must say what the Lord tells me to say, but I can get up in my skin just as like, much as you can. I pleaded with Him. Don't let me say anything I don't need to say. And so go with me to the last, if you've got your notes here. Just go with me to the last point. How shall we respond to this Lord who is worthy of our worship? James 1, 17 and 18 says this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here's our immovable sinner this morning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so, for many years, I pretty much lived as I pleased through the week. I went to church and I got my little envelope. Y'all remember, I'm the one with the little check boxes on there. I checked all them boxes. Even if I had to cram before I went to church. God's happy with me if I check those boxes. He don't care as much about how I treat my family or how I respect my girlfriend or what comes out of my mouth. 
who I choose to be my circle of influence through the week. As long as I go to church and I check those boxes, did that for many years. Got in a position of leadership in the church. Became a deacon when we were deacon-led. We did not have elders. And deacons had their hands in absolutely everything. We did everything. And I was what you would call a dangerous deacon. I knew what the Bible says. But I was missing something. So because of the love of Christ... I was at my week, my daily idol, my job, the one I loved more than anything else in the world. I, I proved about how many hours we put in. My legs started hurting. Only got worse, went over to both hips. Both legs started burning. Both legs started hurting. Two surgeries later, sitting in my recliner with no, not able to work. I was depressed and angry miserable person attack the ones who loved me the most and some guys I went to church with started bringing me books and one of the books they brought me was Fox's Book of Martyrs and you can't watch but so much TV about two weeks you get tired of that mess and so I started to read I began to read men like Wycliffe Tyndale and Huss and people that we will never know their names men and women boys and girls everyone I'm the same age as some of you in this room who was not ashamed of the name who went to college to teach themselves language so that some people could have the Bible who, who sold and risked everything by the way, it's the same thing that people who started this country did. And I began to ask myself a question. If these people are following Christ, what am I doing? It was a miserable, <laughs> it was a miserable few weeks. But what God did in the midst of that suffering is help me realize this truth. And I prayed for you today that God may help some of you realize it. That I had lost the joy of my salvation. I knew all the information. And I believed it. But I wasn't happy. You see, you don't end up with some hero. That's not where you end up. You ask yourself to these these people, these men and women and children who gave their life, why did they do it? It was for the joy of their salvation that they did it. They did not do it because of dead religion. They did it because of the love of Christ. And listen, if God had to smite you on your face, he did not do it so that you would despise Him, but that you would realize that you have lost the joy of your salvation and that if you would repent and come to the cross, it could be as if you have never seen Him before. It would be so sweet. And this is our prayer for us as we begin Malachi. 
Not that we would begin to smite each other with what we don't do. But that they would begin at the cross. The Lord is great. Psalms 35 says this. Let those who delight in my righteousness joy, shout for joy and be glad. And say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. Do you know that? God delights to be good to you. He delights in it. And so today, as we start through Malachi, God is going to say some sobering things to his people. But he only says it because he loves them. Because he did not say it to the Edomites. He said it to the people that he loved the most. And so today, let us now, brothers and sisters, draw ourselves, our hearts together. As, they are, as we're about to stand to sing, we're going to sing about this love of Christ, about this gospel. And we are going to go to the tables. One table is completely sealed packages. The others are open. You can go to whichever that you feel comfortable with. But brothers and sisters, we're going to sing a couple of songs. And you go as you're ready to the tables. Listen, this is the way we worship every week. We worship with our voice. We worship through our giving. Our baskets are at the table. We worship through coming to the elements because the Lord commanded us to do it. Why did He command us to do it? For the love of Christ. To remember that there is something true of you that no person can take away. And that truth is this. I love you, says the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you this morning as Brother Mike was singing that song before we heard the word. I thank you for people that you give these beautiful words to describe how we feel inside. Thank you for music. How it expresses our heart in a way that we can't express. And yet, Lord, they are insufficient. And so, Lord, we long for that day when we will actually have the sufficient words and the sufficient ability to worship you as you deserve to be worshipped. But now, God, May the love of Christ in us, which is our hope of glory, rise up to our feet and in our voice and through a celebration of the table, through our giving and through our going, that we would make much of you and enjoy it. And so God today, if there is one here that the losses and the crosses have robbed the joy of their salvation, oh God, would you lean down and kiss them on the cheek today and whisper in their ear that they are loved, that they are cherished, and that they are safe. 
But this is our reality in you. And from that we live. And so now receive our worship. In Jesus' name. Amen.